0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, responding
1: to terrorism. Run, hide, fight. Keep those words in your mind because in the moment that it happens, you're going to be in a sense of panic.
0: In a special episode, we examine how the response to terror attacks has changed since 9-11 and how these attacks and media coverage of the violence can affect our health. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, September 9th, and I'm Noah 11.
2: And I'm Amy Montemiro. This weekend, the United States will mark 15 years since the 9-11 attacks, the deadliest terror attack on US soil.
0: Since then, there have been more than 83,000 terror attacks worldwide, and nearly 300 in the US, according to the University of Maryland's Global Terrorism Database. A smaller number of these attacks in the US, less than 50, have been deadly. These acts of violence encompass a broad range of attackers, motives, and methods. And while terror attacks in the U.S. are rare, the fact that these attacks occur at all is still a concern, and has become much more apparent for Americans in the wake of 9-11. This year, attacks in the U.S. and abroad have grabbed headlines, Orlando, Nice, Istanbul, Brussels, and dozens more in countries like Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Libya. While the average U.S. citizen is much more likely to be injured or die in a car crash, or from diabetes, the threat of terrorism has become a prominent part of the American psyche and political debate. And so it's important to examine what we have learned about combating terrorism, responding to terrorism, and how to keep terrorism from affecting our health and well-being.
2: The reasons for terror attacks are complex, and in this episode, we'll be looking mainly at the response to terrorism in two areas— First, how leaders from governments to first responders handle these crises. And second, how terrorism and the media coverage of these attacks can affect our health.
0: And we wanted to start with some context about terrorism around the world. We spoke with Leonard Marcus, co-director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, or NPLI, which is a collaborative effort of the Harvard Chan School and the Harvard Kennedy
1: School. These events are unusual, so we hear about them a lot. Our minds tend to overestimate what the real risk is. We certainly are seeing an uptick in terrorist attacks in Europe and the United States. Uh, to, to, be, to be very clear, um, these sorts of attacks are happening and have been happening on a regular basis uh, in the Middle East. So um, what's headline news for us here uh, in the United States is daily routine in a place like Syria or in a place like Iraq. You could put the the attacks into two categories. One of them are directed by ISIS or by terrorist organizations centrally, and the other brand are the lone wolf, and so these are people that are not connected to any organization. They've perhaps read information on the internet, they've been given how-to information on the internet, and they go off and do that on their own. So it's that combination making it very difficult to predict when and how some of these attacks will occur.
0: Since the 9-11 attacks, Marcus and his colleagues at the NPLI have been studying leadership and effective response to crises, ranging from hurricanes to terrorism, and they have also trained leaders from across the country. As Marcus indicated,
2: preventing and responding to terrorism is growing increasingly difficult with the proliferation of attacks from groups like the Islamic State or ISIS.
0: Marcus says that, of course, the best-case scenario is stopping a terror attack before it occurs, but often that just isn't possible. He says that since 9-11, there has been a growing focus among American intelligence agencies and first responders, from the federal government down to local police, on the idea of connectivity. And there's also now a growing awareness and acceptance that terror attacks can happen in the U.S.
1: The better these intelligence agencies are working together, the better they're sharing information, the better they're coordinating their actions, the more likely the system is either to prevent an act from happening or if there is a terror attack, being able to more quickly respond to it, um, assess what happened, do the forensic work, and then move that information out so that other organizations and other countries can learn from what happened.
0: At MPLI, Marcus and his colleagues teach a concept called meta-leadership.
2: They want leaders to look at problems and take actions using a wide perspective. It means focusing on organizations instead of individuals and busting down the so-called silos that can often separate different agencies.
0: A key change in recent years among emergency responders has been taking a, quote, all-hazards approach, says Richard Serino. He's a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative and a former Deputy Administrator at FEMA. We spoke with him over the phone.
3: For years, we historically prepared for the last disaster, not necessarily planning for the next disaster. Um, And we got in trouble with that over the years of how we are able to, after 9-11, we spent a lot of time preparing for terrorism, and then we had a major hurricane. Then after the uh, Katrina, everybody started preparing for Katrina, but then other emergencies happened. So it's really taking an all hazards approach and looking at what potentially could happen. And with terrorism, uh, things that you didn't think were possible 10, 20, 10, 20 years ago, even less, you're starting to see happen. So it's preparing for that and drilling for that and exercising for those is what really makes a difference.
0: So what does this type of preparedness actually look like in practice? An ideal case study is the response to the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. In that attack, two bombs were detonated at the Marathon finish line, killing three people instantly and injuring hundreds more. An MIT police officer was also later shot and killed by the two attackers.
2: What's notable, says Marcus, is that because the emergency response was so quick, no one injured by the bombing died. And this was no accident. Marcus says that the emergency responders, Police, firefighters, EMS, and hospitals all trained and drilled for this type of event. And they all had existing relationships that made it easier to formulate an effective response.
0: What is unique about the marathon response is that no one person was in charge. Marcus explains.
1: Usually when we study uh, the response to a crisis, there's one individual that's operationally in charge. Uh, during H1N1, it was Dr. Rich Besser, who was a... Uh, uh, acting director of the CDC. During the Deepwater Horizon, it was Admiral Thad Allen, who was the National Incident Commander. There wasn't such an operational lead in Boston. And yet, these leaders were extraordinarily successful. Again, everybody who survived the initial bombing survived. Uh, they, They caught the bad guys in 102 hours. The city was resilient.
0: The key to all of this, says Marcus, is a concept called swarm intelligence. It's the same principle that guides how bees, fish, and birds all coordinate their actions.
2: Marcus and NPLI researchers identified five principles that define the successful response to the Boston Marathon bombing.
1: We came upon five principles. One of them was unity of mission, save lives. The second was generosity of spirit and action. People were really there to help one another. The third was everybody stayed in their own lane, their responsibilities, and helped others succeed in theirs. The fourth, no ego, no blame. Nobody stood up and said, it was we did it or I did it, and nobody was pointing fingers. And the fifth was a foundation of trusting relationships.
2: Marcus says these same principles can also be applied to preventing terror attacks.
0: He says that a swarm will always beat a bureaucracy. Take the example of ISIS, which Marcus describes as an adaptive and flexible terrorist group.
1: They're operating like a really good swarm because they don't have central authority, all right? Um, they have some, they have bureaucratic elements as well, um, but they're operating like a swarm. That makes it really difficult for large bureaucratic law enforcement intelligence organizations to work in that arena because they're very bureaucratic. Or one country has the information about the bad guy. Do they share it with another country?
0: At the end of the day, Marcus says that he and other experts are trying to answer the question, how do you prepare for what you can not predict? He says that the growing trend among emergency responders, law enforcement, and the intelligence community to be proactive and connected is encouraging. And we'll hear from Marcus again later in this episode, but now we're going to shift gears.
3: The first of the two explosions rocks the sidewalk along the course. White smoke
2: blasting into the air. We've covered the response to terrorist attacks, but what are the lingering health effects of this violence?
0: For those injured in an attack or those who lose a loved one, the effects are often quite direct.
2: And there's now a growing body of evidence that terror attacks can have a range of effects on people who live where attacks have occurred or even people who just watch media coverage of terrorism. We spoke over the phone with Dana Garfin, a research associate at the University of California, Irvine. Garfin says we learned a lot about terrorism and health after 9-11.
4: The goal when somebody commits a terrorist attack is to transmit fear and anxiety throughout the population to achieve a political goal. And so what our research has shown is that that Breath of influence is, is quite large. So after 9-11, we saw people all over the country that experienced symptoms of post-traumatic stress. It's not technically considered a post-traumatic stress disorder because some of these people were exposed through the media or through stories from friends and so on. But they would experience what we call post-traumatic stress symptoms, which are the clinical characteristics of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we saw that in a in a large percentage of the population um, all over the country. So while many people do do recover and do examine exhibit resilience, you know we see these negative impacts on the population. And we see this both in terms of a number of mental health outcomes such as just general distress, post-traumatic stress, and we've also seen increases in health problems such as cardiovascular problems, which obviously have long-term implications for health.
2: Garfner and colleagues are now looking to expand on that body of research by studying the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing.
0: A key question they're exploring, how does media coverage of terrorism affect our health? When it comes to the Boston attack, they're studying how people were exposed to coverage, whether it was radio, TV, or the internet. And also what they saw. Were there graphic and violent images?
2: All of these can be distressing, and the study will try to figure out exactly how that stress can manifest itself physically and mentally. But Garfin says that researchers are seeing a clear relationship. The more coverage you watch, the more negative effects you're likely to experience.
4: Watching a lot of media coverage of these events is not good for your physical and mental health. And, and you know, I want to emphasize that it's watching a lot. So whether you read the newspaper, you get update on your phone, and you kind—you're of, aware of what's going on. You know, we're not saying don't be aware of what's going on, but it really seems to be this kind of like going home, turning on CNN, watching these things over and over and over again. Particularly with these graphic images, that tends to elicit negative symptoms. To be informed about an event, you don't need to see the person with their. that fell off or, you know, some very terrible, tragic image that, you know, tends to be distressing for people. Time and time again in our data, we've shown that that has been a very strong predictor of distress and oftentimes as strong or stronger than actually being at the event.
2: Garfin says this can extend beyond terrorism to other crises, including public health threats such as Zika or the flu.
0: And she says there's a fine line between being prepared and taking precautions, such as using bug spray for traveling to an area with Zika virus, and being overly fearful.
2: And that's something we wanted to ask Rich Cerrito and Leonard Marcus, who you heard from earlier. How do we balance preparation and fear? How can we, the general public, become more resilient in the wake of a
0: terror attack? Serino's answer, shift the narrative and terminology we use to empower survivors.
3: For years, we referred to people as victims, victims of blood, victims of a tornado, victims of a car crash, uh, and unfortunately, victims of people who pass away, who die, and look at everybody else as a survivor. And... In calling people survivors, it really is powerful to call someone a survivor versus a victim. I am a two-time cancer survivor. I am not a two-time cancer victim.
0: For Marcus, it comes down to preparation, awareness, and a pragmatic approach. As he said at the beginning of the episode, the chances of any one person being the victim of a terror attack
1: are very small.
0: But what if you are nervous? For example, you're traveling abroad with your family.
2: He told us how he prepared his family during a recent trip to London.
1: I had a whole plan in my mind, of what we would do if there were a terrorist attack. First off, you've got to figure out what happened. you know. And I said to my wife and to my son, uh, keep an eye out. If people are very nervously looking at their cell phones, if we hear ambulances, that means there was a terror attack. We're going to walk back to our hotel. We're going to get into the room, and that's the right thing for us to do at that time. So if you're sitting in a theater, where are the exits? And just like when we sit in an airplane, we know where the exits are. So when you're sitting in a theater, you're sitting in a restaurant, you're in a public place, it's just useful to be mindful of that. Chances are you're not going to use it. Uh, if you are, it's probably because there's been a fire. But if, if people are just aware of their, more aware of their surroundings and more aware of what they would do if a bad thing happened, we can all feel a lot safer. So if you're in an active shooter, there are three words that should go through your mind. Run, hide, fight. So the first thing is you want to get out of that area, and you've got to look around to figure out where the active shooter is and what would be a safe route out. Um, The second thing, if you can't get out, hide. That means you're in a school, for example, there's an active shooter in the hallway. Go into a room and then barricade the doors. You know, hide. Turn off your cell phone. And if those two things can not happen and you've got the active shooter right next to you, fight. And so, run, hide, fight. Keep those words in your mind because, in the moment that it happens, you're going to be in a sense of panic. A lot of your brain cells are going to turn off. But just remember, run, hide, fight. And then bring other people with you.
2: So, in this episode, we've talked a lot about violent terrorism, an active shooter situation like Marcus just mentioned, or a bombing like the one in Boston.
0: But Marcus says the next great threat will actually be cyber terrorism.
1: In our lifetimes, we have handed over um, all of our records and our interactions and our homework and our teaching uh into the cyber world and we were very eager to do it because it was convenient and it was cheap and it was right there It's just very seductive to, to, to move into the cyber world and we did that before we ensured that there would be security so people who are expert in this field are concerned that um uh, bad guys, could get into uh, the electrical grid and, and turn off a big section of the United States or into the water system. And so that really is the horizon where people are focused on right now.
0: As they've done in the past, Marcus and his colleagues like Richard Serino at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative are already at work training leaders at the federal level to respond to cyber threats.
2: To read more about NPLI's work and the research being conducted by Dana Garfin at the University of California, Irvine, visit our website, hsph.me thisweekinhealth.
0: And as always, you can find new and old episodes of this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.